Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a big tech transformation on track at the Pentagon. DOD has completed about six of their 24 planned deployment waves, and the system has been deployed to roughly 20% of their user base. Industry's objections to open standards at the Air Force disappear. I think they've gotten religion. In other words, they've been listening to what leaders have been saying through the years. And turning competitors into collaborators in the intelligence community. I meet with them face to face on a regular basis. And then I meet with them also in the round. And they're all saying the right things. They're all saying we are willing to cooperate, collaborate, communicate. It's Friday, October 1st, 2021. Happy new fiscal year. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Defense Department has a new chief software officer. Jason Weiss is moving to the new job from his most recent position as the department's director of software modernization. Before he joined the government earlier this year, he was vice president of IT transformation at BAE Systems. The Navy is 138,000 users short of its goal today of migrating all of its users to its version of Office 365. The Navy wanted to move 472,000 users by October 1st, but only 334,000 are on the new flank speed system today. The continuing resolution President Biden signed will keep the government open for nine weeks. Agencies can stay open under the funding until at least December 3rd. One of my guests on the Daily Scoop podcast called it right when a bunch of the others were more pessimistic about a shutdown. Check in with him right now. Francis, how you doing, my friend? Joe Jordan, you called it, buddy, so I got to give you credit. Thank you very much. You know, it's, uh, there's not always accountability in these political prognostications, but it's, uh, it sure is fun to come back on when I'm right. You were the only person since the beginning of the Daily Scoop podcast that said, there's not going to be a shutdown. There's no chance it's not going to happen. So I had to give you a chance to take a victory lap. I appreciate that. Uh, if it wasn't for uh, my Mac Jones predictions during our, my same appearance, I would really be taking a victory lap. Mac Jones struggling, but, you know, it is what it is. And kudos <laughs> to you for being true to your region of the country. I mean, New England's <laughs> not really a state, but that's okay. We can pick about that another time. Yeah, well, I mean, my uh, hope, my uh, endless optimism applies both to uh, the New England Patriots and occasional congressional action. So I'm happy at least one of those things came true in this case. All right. The other thing this means is I need to have you back on the show within like a week or two of the beginning of December because you're going to have to call it again. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm going to get the tea leaves and predict what's happening next. You're thinking about it too hard. <laughs> I'm undefeated on, uh, you know, the new Francis Rose Fed Scoop podcast. Yes. So I, I'm going to keep this momentum going for sure. All right. Good luck to you and uh, happy fiscal new year. Thanks for taking the call. I imagine you probably had a pretty crazy New Year's Eve celebration last night. Yeah, I did. I did. You know, this is the true New Year's for yeah. those of us in GovCon. That's so right. I'm, uh, I'm just, uh, you know, getting coffee and excitement that there is a CR. That's great. Happy New Year, my friend. Happy New Year, buddy. Once again, good call, Joe. Leading government cyber experts like Senator Gary Peters will join me at Palo Alto's Public Sector Ignite virtual conference. It's happening Thursday, November 18th, and I hope you'll come too. You'll learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies, including zero trust, endpoint detection and response, and secure remote access. You can sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com. 
The Defense Department is making progress in one of its biggest IT implementations ever, but it's having training problems that could hold back the growth and scaling of the program. Carol Harris is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity at the Government Accountability Office. Carol, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. You're looking at two things with the MH Genesis uh, program. The first one is determining the progress DOD is making toward implementing the program. What did you see when you looked at that, Carol? Welcome. Thanks for having me, Francis. So uh, what we saw is that DOD is making some good progress in implementing MHS Genesis. You know, as of April of this year, DOD has completed about six of their 24 planned deployment waves, and the system has been deployed to roughly 20% of their user base, uh, which is not insignificant. There is roughly 200,000 planned users in total at the end of the day. Um, and they do have plans to complete the additional 18 waves um, at by the end of December 2023. And they intend to do this at a pace that's like five times faster than, than the pace uh, previously undertaken. And, and we have a couple of issues um, with regard to how they move forward. And so we made some recommendations as a result. But that's where they are in terms of status. I want to cover that pace and, and the scaling later in our conversation, Carol. You and your colleagues write, DOD also improved system performance and addressed issues experienced at the initial sites. They had the same issue that VA did. They deployed at a couple of sites. They had some issues. They went on pause for a while and then went back at it. Um, what's your sense of what they learned during that pause and how they got to where you wrote that they had improved system performance? Yeah, so they, they identified roughly 710 incidents as part of their operational testing. Um, and since then, as of May of this year, they've closed 412 of them. So that's that's good progress in, in closing these, these incidents. However, there are 288 that remain. Um, and roughly 50% of those are deemed critical or major by DOD, meaning that if these incidents aren't resolved, that they could result in mission failure or even partial mission failure. And so um, we, we want to make sure that, that DOD does address these before they move forward in implementing uh, the, the system at, at the future sites to avoid you know, catastrophic failures. Uh, DOD, you write, hasn't developed plans to conduct additional testing at future sites. Uh, is that the crux of the problem or is that symptomatic of the problem, do you think, Carol? I think that's a, a major part of, of DOD's issue. Um, fortunately, they agreed with our findings and they do intend to address our recommendations. So they do have efforts underway to, to have plans to, to conduct additional testing, which is good news. Um, in addition to identifying and resolving these critical incidents, um, we also identified training and communication issues as part of the deployment. And so we do want to make sure that DOD addresses those issues um, as we move forward as well. And that's the second piece I wanted to address. Uh, you write test results and selected system users indicated training and dissemination of system change information were ineffective. What was the root of that ineffectiveness? What were the people not getting that they should have been getting or what were they getting that they didn't need, Carol? I think a large part of that was the training environment didn't contain all the necessary functionality. So the training wasn't consistent with what was occurring in the live system. And that's what a lot of these users were identifying. Um, for example, they, they couldn't 
uh, th their roles weren't available in the training environment and they couldn't find out what that role was until the program was scheduled to go live um, or that the workflows, for example, could not be practiced during that training. So um, those were the some types of, of training issues. Um, in addition to that, um, the, the users also found that there weren't enough on-site efforts or experts, excuse me, um, to help them as part of the, the training and then also the, the implementation when it went live. Um, and also that the training didn't explain how data flowed through the system and that the trainers also didn't understand like the downstream consequences of incorrectly entered data. So these were some of the I think key issues as part of the, the training that, that need to be addressed as they move forward. How much of that is, it, well, for, I'll ask it this way. Is there a way to discern how much of that is ineffective development and implementation, Carol, and how much of it is just the kind of uh, a freestyle nature of developing a system like this with agile methodology where stuff does change week to week? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of hard to, to pull that apart and discern the, the two areas. However, I will say, you know, given that they are doing it in an agile environment, uh, because they're able to identify those issues quickly, um, that, that they should be able to also be more nimble in how they adapt their training. So I think that that's the good news there. Um, and, and when they continue to do additional testing to make sure that they resolve those critical and, and major incidents, um, their training should also reflect uh, those, uh, the, the improvements in that regard. The three recommendations that you make that the department should develop an approach to retesting incidents, as we've already discussed, improve training, mm -hmm. and develop a plan to ensure MHS Genesis users are aware of system changes. Do you have a sense or an opinion of what that plan should look like or just that the department needs one in continuing to scale MH Genesis? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the department needs a plan. I mean, the users couldn't keep up with the pace of the changes made to the system and DOD did not have a plan in place to address that. So so that, um, so they need to have that, that plan in place. Um, the, the good news here is that they do have a governance board that does assess um, when system updates are made um, and they have a communication approach that determines uh, the impact that those updates will make. But clearly there's a little bit of a breakdown here because this approach doesn't ensure that end users are obviously being made aware of these relevant system changes. So, so at least they have a system or a, an infrastructure in place to address um, the, the system changes and, and the impacts that those updates will have but they have to just have that plan in place so that the users are getting that information that they need. We're almost out of time, Carol, but you referenced at the beginning of our conversation that 2023 uh, goal that the the uh, agency has for rolling this out 100%. They're 20% complete, and you mentioned that five times uh, scaling speed that the department is aiming for. Are these the only three things that you think hold them back for that? Or are these just three things they need to keep in mind if they're going to hit that goal? I think these are things that could potentially hold them back, um, especially if they don't address those critical and major incidents um, as they move forward with their deployment. I think that ultimately, without addressing them, that will slow them down. So in order to be able to meet those deadlines, which are, are aggressive in nature, 
uh, they need to fully address the recommendations that we've made. Carol Harris of the Government Accountability Office, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you. You can find a link to Carol's work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, modernization for the intelligence community. The IC's Chief Information Officer, Michael Waschel, will be here. The lineup for the Daily Scoop podcast is available every day on Twitter. You can follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod and find out what's coming. The leader of the Rapid Capabilities Office at the Air Force, Randy Walden, says his office needs industry help with the Advanced Battle Management System. Walden says the ABMS system will benefit from what commercial industry's done with what he calls a more global Internet of Systems. Deborah Lee James is chair of the Defense Business Board. She was the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force, and she's author of Aim High, Chart Your Course, and Find Success. Madam Secretary, thanks for joining me. Congratulations, first of all, um, on taking the Defense Business Board chair. That's happened since the last time that we talked. What do you uh, what what appealed to you about taking that position? Well, first of all, thank you, Francis. As always, it's always great to speak with you, and really happy to be part of this podcast. The Defense Business Board. I'm really I'm really psyched about it. Um, it's a it's an exciting new way for me to continue to serve uh, in the Pentagon, so to speak. And it, for me, it's a, an opportunity to blend my business and my government experience. And I have to always start with a disclaimer that I cannot speak for DOD, and really I can't even speak for the board yet because we are still Stormin' and Norman, and no one is confirmed, no one has been sworn in other than me. But I'm very excited to, to be part of it, and I think we have some interesting challenges in business operations, talent, and transformation, and an all-star cast of people that are going to help us do our work. Well, once that all-star cast is in and you can speak on behalf of the Defense Business Board, I hope you will humor me and come back and, and do that very thing. This connection to industry that is really kind of a buzz right now in the Defense Department broadly, but in the Air Force in particular, is where I want to go today. I mentioned uh, Randy Walden's comments recently. Your successor, Frank Kendall, uh, spoke at a conference recently and talking about the types of businesses, the types of companies that he wants to do business with. What will build a more effective connection, do you think, between industry, whether it's traditional industry or new companies, and the department itself, Debbie? Well, first of all, I think you always need a mixture of different types of companies. And what you want is you want to understand broadly what is available out there in the marketplace and have access to all of it so that you can, uh, as the Department of Defense, so that you can pick and choose. And I know Secretary Kendall was recently quoted, I believe, at Air Force Association Conference as saying um, he wanted to get traditional industry, the, 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 the bigger primes perhaps, the, the companies that are more used to doing business with DOD, more into the game. And what I think he meant by that, I don't think he meant to say that he did not any longer want access to the newer, smaller companies and the commercial uh, technologies, but there's been so much emphasis on that in recent years. I think he was trying to say what we need to do is find a happy medium because those big companies know us well. They've served us overall very, very well through the years. And so what we need is a balance. We need the best of all that they can bring to the table for our capabilities. Yeah, my colleague Jackson Barnett reported this. I think this is the quote you're talking about, Debbie. There has not been enough effort, Frank said, to tap into the capabilities that exist in both major defense contractors and defense-oriented nonprofit organizations. I think you're right. 
I didn't see anything in that report that indicates he's not interested in dealing with the cutting edge innovation companies. Sounds to me like he's saying the traditional companies the department's done business with uh, for a long time might have more to offer than the department's been exploring. Is that what you heard also? Well, and I think uh, it, it may also be true. There's been a lot of hype about the commercial uh, technology companies, the small startups in the Silicon Valley and elsewhere. And they do have fantastic capabilities. But for example, with respect to the advanced battle management system, which has been using an approach of prototyping and testing out different uh, small capabilities with on-ramp experimentations to see kind of what works and what doesn't work. What we now have is we we have a hodgepodge of many different technologies and lot, lots of different contracts, but no specific roadmap on which ones are going to scale up and where do we go from here. So I think what Secretary Kendall was saying, you know, other companies, larger companies, integrators, maybe can help us solve that. And oh, by the way, the larger integrators also have agile software development. They have some of the capabilities that we have become uh particularly much more familiar with in recent years coming out of Silicon Valley. What was your take on the uh, group of defense industry leaders saying that uh, JADC2, ABMS need to be open standards? Uh, that seems to make a lot of sense broadly. It's not something that the defense industry has been very good with or, or very happy about over time, it seems. Well, you just, you just nailed it, Francis. What I would say is I, th I think they've gotten religion. In other words, they've been listening to what leaders have been saying through the years. Certainly when, when I was Secretary of the Air Force, Bill LaPlante, who was the Assistant Secretary at the time, he used to always talk about how important it was that the U.S. government owned the technical baseline, but that industry needed to get with the program and uh, have open standards so that we could pick and choose among different companies. We didn't want to be locked in for the next 20 or 30 years with proprietary approaches because uh, we need to upgrade our systems all the time. So I think what it means is they have been listening. Um, they're, they're getting with the program and they realize this is the future and they must adapt. So I was very happy to hear it. You've been on the other side of that table though too. From an industry perspective, is there a benefit to uh, going along with this open standards idea other than the fact that you're being dragged there by the Air Force? Well, the benefit is if you don't, you lose the competition. So there is that to consider. Uh, remember, proprietary systems have been very, very lucrative for companies yeah. through the years because, again, it allows the customer to get used to a certain system, and literally they get locked in. So, of course, there's no competition after that. You cannot recompete. So um, it's just it's a new way of doing business. They they will adapt. They are adapting. I, I have confidence that you know we're going to continue to move forward in this way. What do you think JADC2 winds up looking like a year or two from now, Debbie? Uh, a year or two from now, I think we're still going to be building and growing and testing, but hopefully we will have, particularly on the ABMS side, we will have more specific, albeit perhaps small, capabilities that we can actually say, hey, these are out there in the field and they are working. We have tangible results to show for the years of effort and for the money that has been spent. This is precisely, I believe, why the Air Force is now pivoting away from this, I'll say, experimentation, prototyping, many, many different commercial technologies being tested all at once phase to a much more focused uh, capabilities phase 
in which they're going to take a specific project. The first one out of the barrel that the uh, RCO is going to tackle relates to the KC-46 uh, tanker program and creating and fielding pods for the KC-46, which would allow them to uh, operate, you might say, as a flying cell tower, which, oh, by the way, if that works, that would be fantastic because it would allow the KC-46 to link up let's say the F-22 and the F-35, which currently cannot link up and cannot communicate. They have incompatible systems. So that would be an example of something tangible. It would be real world and it would be an important capability. And hello, that's what Congress wants to see. Madam Secretary, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on the program. Thank you, Francis. You can read more about JADC2 in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Monday's program, a deadline countdown for every agency and the National Archives. The Deputy Chief Information Officer at NARIS, Sheena Burrell, has advice to help you make that deadline. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The intelligence community is turning competitors into collaborators in the cloud. The IC's commercial cloud enterprise contract includes some of the biggest names in cloud computing. Michael Washell is acting chief information officer of the IC. Mike, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What is C2E? What are you doing with that contract? And tell me about that turning co uh, competitors into collaborators. Welcome. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here and pleasure to uh, discuss this with you this morning. We're very excited about the commercial cloud enterprise contract, uh, a 15 year period of performance contract with five different uh, partners there to help us bring the very best technology capacity and capability to bear on the intelligence community's most difficult problems. We've learned a lot in the, in the eight years that we've been involved with Amazon that the opportunity and the enthusiasm and optimism uh, is, is flush, frankly. Uh, with the expanded stable of providers that we have to work with today. We're very excited. But it is early yet. Um, as you know, two, only two of the five are at initial operating capability. The other three members of our stable are still kind of spinning up, if you will, getting their teams organized, getting their innovation centers uh, equipped and and building their, uh, building their capability internally. But I meet with them face-to-face -face on a regular basis, and then I meet with them also in the round, and they're all saying the right things. They're all saying we are willing to cooperate, collaborate, communicate to bring our commercial best practices to bear on your problems. And, and so that's been a theme that, uh, that we've tried to uh, emphasize here, that, that we appreciate and, and are interested in seeing that collaboration and rather than any single technical or price point, uh, the idea of that collaboration, picking and choosing among the various capabilities that each of these world-class providers can offer, that is the real hope for the future, sir. Over the summer, you posed this rhetorical question to my colleague, Billy Mitchell. How do we incentivize collaboration, cooperation, communication, and mutual support between and among what are, frankly, these five competitors? Do you have an answer yet to that rhetorical question, Mike? I've got part of an answer so far, uh, and that is award fee and incentive fee task orders. The, 
I spent 10 years at missile defense, and I learned at the knee of Lieutenant General uh, Obering, for example, and, and General Kadish. And what they taught me was incentive and award fee, while difficult and problematic to sustain and collect data and record and, and register, it is the juice is worth the squeeze. The idea of incentivizing uh, our private sector mission partners to achieve the outcomes and to embrace the attitudes and to bring to bear the attributes that we seek is critical. And that incentive and award fee has been baked in to our contracts now. And, and so that's going to be there for us. We don't generally use incentive and award fee in the intelligence community. We use cost plus fixed fee because it's far easier to manage. But I'm thinking that this, that this kind of change, uh, the program office, the world-class CIA uh, console and, and CloudWorks program office is baking this capacity, this flexibility into the task orders. It's not mandated. Our, our intelligence component CIOs can take it or leave it. But I'm certainly going to advocate on its behalf and, and from this bully pulpit as, as ICCIO, I'm going to encourage it. And I'll tell you this, sir, when my CIO colleagues, they are world-class intellects, when they come to me and ask for advocacy or ask for support for funding for a key initiative or, or another, my first question will always be, what is your acquisition strategy and are you embracing incentive and award fee? I hope that will help us get to the right place to set conditions for cooperation, collaboration, uh, and communication between the partners. I think that will help. How will you measure internally the controls, policies, whatever, are working the way that you've laid them out to get you to the result that you want so that you're not halfway through this 15-year performance period and you realize you didn't really get what you thought you were going to get? So what you monitor and manage is what, and is, is what you need to measure. And so... What is the litmus of goodness? And I think the litmus of goodness across our IC will be how much of our, of our workloads that are currently resident in aging and expensive legacy data centers are being refactored, not just lift and shift, but are being refactored and re-engineered and moved into one of these clouds or multiple of these clouds. Uh, that is a, is, is a key uh, indicator, I think, of our performance. The other part of it is the quality of the engineering going into that refactoring for both existing legacy workloads as well as the new initiative workloads. Are they really bringing the best technical acumen to bear on the problem? And, and, and are they in that collaboration? Are they picking and choosing the attributes of the different cloud providers and bringing it together as a hybrid molecule, that uh, I think is a key litmus test for how effective we're using uh, the platform and the vehicles. When you talk about refactoring and re-engineering these applications, are you talking about the business processes themselves? And uh, how do you measure whether you're getting the results you want from the new business processes, if so, Mike? Uh, it's a little different than that, sir. Okay. It, it's, what I'm thinking about here are the workloads, for example, today, there are two classes of workloads here. We've got, we've got mission applications and we've got enterprise applications. So from a mission perspective, when we fly a satellite, we often build a ground station to take that, that take down from on high. And it has internal to it processing that, that, that makes renders that which has been collected 
uh, useful. And then that is then moved to analysts across the community for further analysis and turning information into intelligence. The processes and the applications and the tools and the databases uh, that are in those legacy systems, that to me, the key indicator is, are the cloud offerings we're putting together, are they sufficient there too to be able to take those legacy tailored bespoke workloads and move them into a more cost-effective, more securable, more modern environment? That's what I'm thinking about. The other part are the enterprise computing, and that is the infrastructure that connects the 18 members of the intelligence community with the far-flung global geographically diverse uh, consumers of intelligence, combatant commands, uh, echelons below the COCOM, others. Uh, how we move that data around, uh, we believe cloud to cloud is going to be a key portion of that because in an increasingly competitive environment from a warfighting and deterrence perspective, we know that our adversaries are, are we know we can't rely on everything coming out of back to Washington and, and then back out from Washington. We need to geographically disperse our enterprise uh, to a great degree to allow high capacity cloud computing at the tactical edge. That is critical to us. And so to the degree that we utilize these private sector mission partners to disperse uh, our, our enterprise, that to me is a key barometer of our success. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Mike, where you are today with two of these five providers online, the five providers, Amazon, Google, IBM, Microsoft, and Oracle. Where are you, do you think, where do you want to be a year from now? And where do you want to be three years from now to know that you're on track for the long-term success of this contract? So I will tell you, I, I've been in this acquisition business a long time, and I've never seen a more professional program office than the CIA Cloudworks and Console partners. They've got a very clear rollout plan and, and they're working diligently. We've got, you know, you can imagine nested plans of action and milestones, uh, re management reviews, uh, you know, a great deal of effort is going into setting conditions. And the thing I really love is the cloud integration and multi-cloud management, the SIM contract. I can't go into too much detail about it right now, but it is a key enabler here. Uh, it is a separate and distinct effort from the five cloud providers. It is individually competed and it's in the process of competition now, which is why I have to be cautious about what I say. But what we've got here is, is a uh, advisory, a non-conflicted cloud expertise consultant and advisory contract to help us make the best possible technical decision coupled with the best possible business decision from a volume discounts or enterprise license agreement perspective, we can pick and choose. And the degree and that particular contract has baked into it also a award fee and incentive fee to inspire that collaboration and that orchestration of bringing together the partners and picking and choosing between and among capabilities that which is ideal for the problem at hand. And so that's coming into, into view here. It's, it's in competition right now, but that, that is a powerful 
uh, advancement, if you will, of our capacity to leverage what these five cloud providers could bring to the fight. There's a lot to learn, I think, for other agencies in what you're doing, Mike. So when you let that contract, I'd love to have you come back and talk about it. I'd be pleased to do that, sir. You can read more on the IT transformation in the intelligence community in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thank you for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. If you haven't done it yet, do it this weekend, please. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me get the show out every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Coming on Monday, the Deputy CIO of the National Archives, Sheena Burrell. Until then... I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Happy new fiscal year. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening.